One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Vikings at Bills. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43 and a half. Due to the uncertainty around the Josh Allen situation, the Vikings and Bills Edge Breakdown will be posted Friday afternoon once we have more information. Lions at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 48 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Josh Reynolds remained out of Wednesday's practice after missing last week's game typically not a good sign for his availability for the coming weekend. The Bears have averaged 31.33 points per game over their previous three contests, while the Lions seed the most points per game this season. Jared Goff has been one of the most pressure-sensitive quarterbacks in the league over the previous three seasons, and the Bears blitz at a league-low 14% clip this season and just lost Roquan Smith and Robert Quinn. Everything for a massive shootout is present here, albeit with an extremely wide range of potential outcomes. How Detroit will try to win. Woof. Man. Talk about polar results from this Lions team this season. They started the season first in scoring over the first four weeks before sputtering to just 12 points per game over their next four contests, including weeks of 0, 6, 15, and 1 nice game of 27 points against the Dolphins. The dip in scoring coincides with injuries and players being dealt away, as DeAndre Swift missed multiple games and has returned to only a very limited role. TJ Hawkinson was dealt away to the Vikings. Wide receiver 2 Josh Reynolds has been struggling through injury since Week 5, playing on an injured ankle through two games before missing Week 9 and missing practice on Wednesday to start preparation for Week 10. And DJ Chark has been on IR since Week 7 after missing two consecutive games leading up to their Week 6 bye. Not the easiest wave of events to overcome, to be honest. That said, this is a team that likes to start with a moderate pace with heightened rush rates before adapting to the game environment as the game progresses. That has led to multiple instances of an increased pace of play and aerial aggression in the second half as the team has routinely found themselves in negative game scripts this season. Due to personnel constraints and negative game scripts, the offense has operated primarily from 11 personnel since its week 6 bye, with Amon Ross St. Brown and Khalif Raymond likelier to see near every down rolls, Tom Kennedy and Brandon Zilstra mixing in for the remaining wide receiver snaps, Jamal Williams, DeAndre Swift, and Justin Jackson or Craig Reynolds sharing backfield duties, and blocking specialist Brock Wright sharing tight end duties with the electric rookie James Mitchell. Concentration outside of Amon Ross St. Brown is likely to be sporadic at best. As touched on earlier, DeAndre Swift's injuries have left the backfield with plotter Jamal Williams as the lead back with Swift sparingly used since returning from injury in Week 8. Swift's snap rate dipped from 55% in Week 8 to just 16% in Week 9, as the team felt they brought him along too early. It's likely they continue to be careful with their top back in a lost season, meaning we're likely to see another week of Jamal Williams as the lead back, with Swift and either Craig Reynolds or Justin Jackson mixing in from there. The low per-touch upside of Williams saps most of the upside from this unit, while Swift and Reynolds or Jackson won't be on the field enough to matter from a GPP perspective. Stranger things have happened, but the current state of this backfield does not lend itself to GPP upside. The pure rushing matchup yields a borderline elite 4.85 net adjusted line yards metric, but with Jamal Williams likely responsible for the bulk of the rushing workload, the matchup matters less than in other spots. 
the passing game is a little easier to decipher, with Amon Ross St. Brown and Khalif Raymond likely to be the only near-every-down pass catchers this week, assuming Reynolds misses, which appears likely as of this writing. St. Brown has seen a combined 19 targets over the previous two weeks, compared to just 7 for Raymond, further constricting the likeliest dispersal of targets, as St. Brown has another week removed from his ankle injury. That makes 11 consecutive fully healthy games for St. Brown with 9 targets or more, dating back to week 12 of last season. One area that should be a slight boost to the Lions offense this week is the relatively low blitz and pressure rates generated by the Bears defense this season, which should theoretically take a hit through the departures of defensive end Robert Quinn and linebacker Roquan Smith before the trade deadline. From a macro perspective, the Bears have blitzed at a league-low 14% clip this season and have generated pressure at a below-average 20.9% clip. OWS faithful know the difference between pressured Goff and kept clean Goff, but to reiterate things now, Goff has been one of the most pressure-sensitive quarterbacks in the league over the previous three seasons, with one of the worst grades when under pressure and above-average grades when kept clean. All signs point to the likelihood of a cleaner pocket against the Bears this week, which bodes well for his primary pass catcher, Amon Ross St. Brown. How Chicago will try to win. The dam finally burst for Justin Fields and the Bears this past weekend, as Fields finished as the overall QB1 on the week and vaulted OWS users up the leaderboards in the process. The field is now on notice that the Bears are operating in a different way, but last week gives us a third consecutive data point in the progression of this team. However, I feel like the field will miss the fact that the Bears have averaged 73.25 offensive plays per game over the previous four weeks, with no less than 71, after averaging just 54.8 plays per game over the first five weeks of the season, with no more than 63. The headline on ESPN on Wednesday morning read, How quickly can Fields make the Bears Super Bowl contenders? While it's fun to play into that kind of hype, the true headline should have read, How quickly can Ryan Poles make the Bears Super Bowl contenders? I have been very vocal about the success of general manager Ryan Poles this season, whom I regard as immediately in the conversation for top GM in the league from what he has done for this franchise since February. That said, the world is finally starting to see the future upside for this team with the pieces Poles has put into motion. Next up is a matchup with the division rival Lions, who have allowed the most points per game this season at 29.3, and that's with allowing only 9 points to the Packers last week. We know Chicago is going to want to run the football, but that has taken on a different meaning over the previous four games. During that time, the Bears have increased their first down pass rate, increased their design Justin Fields runs, and become less one-dimensional overall. This has led to increased offensive efficiency, more points, and a firmer grasp of how to maximize the talents available on the field. Consider this. The Bears have averaged 31.33 points per game over their last three games, which is more than any team has averaged this season. Yeah, small sample size and the like, but it's a startling change in identity nonetheless. Lead back David Montgomery was back up to a 70% snap rate each of the previous two games after seeing Khalil Herbert jump up to a 41% rate in Week 7, making Montgomery a more than lead back but less than workhorse type back. That said, Montgomery hasn't cracked more than 62 yards on the ground since the philosophical shift in offensive design, as Herbert has the higher rate of touches per snap during that span. Basically, disregarding the snap rate and looking at opportunities shifts the focus in this backfield towards more of a three-headed monster when you also factor in Justin Fields' usage. 
The matchup is pristine against the Lions defense, allowing 5.01 yards per running back carry, yielding a well above average 4.59 net adjusted line yards metric. Workload split is the biggest concern here. Even with the increased scoring, Justin Fields has attempted just 24 passes per game over the previous three weeks, topping out at 28 attempts in last week's loss to the Dolphins. As such, we can't change how we view the pass-catching options, even with the shift in productivity from the offense. That means fantasy viability is strictly tied to touchdowns, as was seen last week through the two-touchdown game from tight end Cole Komet. That said, remember how mobile quarterbacks unlock their ceiling. It isn't enough to even rush for 178 yards and a score, as Fields did last weekend, these quarterbacks must also toss multiple touchdowns, meaning the pass catchers must catch multiple touchdowns. As such, optimal theory would dictate continuing to pair a pass catcher with Fields as opposed to playing Fields naked. I want it to be abundantly clear, however, that this is very much still a low pass volume offense, one that now adds an additional body in the form of Chase Claypool, who played only 35% of offensive snaps in his first game with the team, but is a player who should also see his role gradually grow as the season progresses. Expect Darnell Mooney and Cole Komet to remain the only near-every-down pass catchers on this offense, with Claypool gradually increasing his role to match those two over the near future. I have no idea when it will happen, but it could be this week, or it could be three weeks from now, but I expect Claypool, Mooney, and Komet to all be in the 85% snap rate range in relatively short order. Likeliest Game Flow This one has all the makings of a true shootout, albeit with a relatively wide range of potential outcomes due to the two-faced nature of the Lions' offense. As in, we should expect the Bears to find offensive success through their growing and more dynamic offense, but the Lions have sputtered through injuries and ineffective play over the previous month after leading the league in scoring over the first four weeks of the season. Due to those injuries, the Lions can basically be viewed as Amon Ra, St. Brown, or Bust from an upside perspective, making stacking up this game fairly easy to do. As in, if Amon Ra succeeds, this game could go nuclear. If he fails and the Lions struggle through a limited DeAndre Swift, a missing DJ Chark, no TJ Hawkinson, and a likely missing or limited Josh Reynolds, this overall environment could suffer and nobody from this game becomes optimal or viable. Wide range of outcomes alert. Jaguars at Chiefs. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 50 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. The KC offense is likely to find real-life success, but that may not lead to fantasy success. Patrick Mahomes' ownership projections might overstate his ownership in reality. Travis Etienne is still underpriced for his opportunity. The Jaguars are trying to keep up and have been in every game this season. How Jacksonville will try to win The 3-6 Jaguars come into Week 10 off a victory against a listless Raiders team that is woefully underperforming their talent. The Jags haven't had many victories to celebrate, but they've been very competitive, with all six losses coming by one score and their previous two victories being blowouts. The Jags have an unfortunate-looking point differential, plus 21, when held up against their record. For comparison, the Jets have a slightly lower point differential, plus 20, but a much better 6-3 record. The difference between point differential and record alone doesn't mean the Jags are vastly underrated, but it serves as a reminder that their record and the perception around them could be very different with a few close results going the other way. Doug Peterson is playing with a moderate pace, 14th overall, but he notably plays quicker, 3rd overall, when trailing. P. 
Peterson wants to run, but never gives up early, speeding up when his team falls behind, which is why so many Jags games finish close. This team isn't rolling over, and it's important to keep in mind that they have been in every game. The Jags have been a huge void between their pass-blocking grades, third per PFF, and their run-blocking grades, 30th per PFF. But that discrepancy hasn't stopped them from trying to run, 23rd in pass-play percentage. The Jags' O-line hasn't created much, 26th in adjusted line yards, but the Chiefs have been equally generous on the ground, 28th in adjusted line yards given up. So there is reason to think that the Jags could find success in a weakness-on-weakness matchup. The Chiefs have been beatable on the ground, 20th in DVOA, and through the air, 24th in DVOA, offering near-equal paths of least resistance. Peterson hasn't gotten enough credit for the coaching job he's done because of his team's record, but he's been willing to start with a run-balanced approach on offense and do what the situation dictates rather than having a rigid, play-our-way approach. Without a glaring weakness to attack, it is likely that Peterson comes out with a ground-based game plan to keep Mahomes off the field, but he will have the willingness to cut bait and try to keep up if the Jags fall behind early. Expect the Jags to try and run the ball for as long as they can before eventually passing when the Chiefs take a lead. How Kansas City will try to win The 6-2 Chiefs come into Week 10 having shown the world through the first half of the season that their Super Bowl window is anything but shut. Tyree Kill is an excellent player, but Patrick Mahomes is demonstrating why QBs matter so much in the NFL. It doesn't make a difference who is catching the ball if Mahomes is doing the throwing. The Chiefs are what they've been for all the Mahomes years, an aggressive, up-tempo, sixth in situation-neutral pace, team that relies on their QB's elite play to win games. Almost no one throws the ball more, their third in pass-play percentage, and as good as past iterations of Andy Reid's offense have been, this one might be the most well-rounded. The Chiefs were explosive with Hill, but they were also one-dimensional, a flaw that was exposed by teams sitting in shell coverages to take away the deep ball. Reed responded by trading away Hill and reforming his wide receiver group to include underneath specialist Juju Smith-Schuster. That was a masterful move since containing both Travis Kelsey and Juju underneath is nearly impossible in shell zones, while burners McCole Hardman and Marquez Valdez-Scantling can combine with Mahomes' laser rocket arm provide enough of a deep threat that teams don't want to come out of too deep coverage. The result is opponents are forced to pick their poison, which to this point in the season has mostly been allowing Mahomes to kill them in the short and intermediate areas of the field, something the Chiefs are now set up much better to do than they were last season. The Jags have been respectable on the ground, 14th in DVOA, but have been spit-roasted, 27th in DVOA, through the air. The Jags' profile is a pass-funnel defense, which must have Andy Reid licking his chops since every defense is a pass-funnel to him. It doesn't require expert analysis to predict the Chiefs are going to pass. The past five weeks, the Jags have played Derek Carr, Russell, out to Pasture Wilson, Daniel Jones, Matt, grazing with Russ, Ryan, and Davis Mills. Mahomes and company will be by far the biggest recent test for the Jags, and it's one they are likely to fail. The Jags rank above league average in pressure rate, but playing at home, the Chiefs' strong O-line, third ranked by PFF, should be up to the task. Likeliest Game Flow This game checks in with the highest total on the slate, 50.5, after opening at 49.5 and quickly being bet up. It makes sense to expect points, as it's unlikely the Jags are going to be able to contain the Chiefs' passing game. We've seen that Jacksonville will try and keep up in games where they fall behind early, giving you all the ingredients for a back-and-forth shootout. 
Further highlighting the chances of a shootout is the aggressive mentality of Kansas City, who is unlikely to take their foot off the gas with a lead. There are a lot of paths to the Chiefs scoring points, and if the Jags can keep up at all, there is a good chance we see a high number on the scoreboard. The Chiefs are two score, nine and a half point, home favorites, with the most likely game flow being one where they jump out to a large lead and the Jaguars do their best to keep up, eventually losing their first game of the year by two scores. Browns at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 48.5. Game Overview by High Low. David Njoku missed practice Wednesday and Thursday, which is telling regarding his game day status considering the Browns are coming off their bye week. Standout tackle Jack Conklin got in a limited session on Wednesday before being downgraded to DNP on Thursday, a situation to monitor as the weekend draws near. Third-string tight end Hunter Long missed practice to start the week as he works his way through the concussion protocol, while second-string tight end Durham Smythe remains on the injury report with a hamstring injury, although he was able to get in a limited session Wednesday. Monitor this situation for Miami for how it might influence Mike Gusecki's involvement, which could fundamentally alter Miami's offensive approach here. This game has a path to truly open up, but it would likely require a very specific game flow where Miami jumps out to a large lead early. Cleveland has shown the desire and ability to increase their pace and aerial aggression when required this season. The flip side to that is this game also has paths to be relatively disappointing, should Cleveland maintain control of the environment deeper into the game. Wide range of potential outcomes as far as the game environment goes. How Cleveland will try to win. Cleveland's expected pass rate, adjusted for game flow and situation, sits just under 62% this season, right around league average but their actual pass rate is just 50.56%, yielding the fourth lowest pass rate over expectation in the league, or pass rate under expectation as someone in Discord pointed out a couple weeks ago. Shout out to you. I forget who it was. The difference between the Browns and some of the other teams in the bottom tier of PROE is pace, as Cleveland starts games with a sluggish pace of play, 22nd ranked, 29.34, but they're not afraid to play up-tempo when the game script requires it fourth-ranked pace of play when trailing by seven or more points this season. That's a positive when looking to attack their game environments due to their propensity to increase aggression should they be trailing. But we know how they want to try and win games, with a moderate to slow pace of play and heavy rush rates through their running back tandem of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. They've largely been able to stick to that game plan behind an offensive line, blocking to the league's seventh-best run-blocking metrics. In games they are able to control via the ground game, Cleveland has shown the propensity to run increased rates of 12 personnel, something that took a hit in Week 8, they were on a bye in Week 9, in the absence of David Njoku. Their 7th ranked net drive success rate has aided in this game plan. However, poor performance in the red zone, 21st ranked 58.62% red zone touchdown rate allowed, has ballooned their points allowed per drive value to a 28th ranked 2.43 which has been the primary issue for the Browns this season. Nick Chubb ranks second in the league in total rush yards at 841, 105 per game, all the while playing no more than 63% of the offensive snaps in a game this season. The Browns are typically more inclined to keep him between 50 and 60% of offensive snaps, which speaks volumes about his unreal efficiency. Kareem Hunt has almost exclusively soaked up the remaining volume out of the backfield, with either Demetric Felton or Dearness Johnson only seeing snaps in blowout games. The Browns rank bottom 10 in the league in running back targets, 
meaning we're betting on the efficiency to continue and multiple touchdowns to flow to either Chubb or Hunt by selecting them to our rosters. The rushing matchup yields a slightly above average 4.39 net adjusted line yards metric against the Dolphins' defense holding opposing backfields to just 3.67 yards per running back carry, second best in the NFL behind only the 49ers. There isn't a lot of hidden analysis required for this unit. What we see is what we get. Of note, standout tackle Jack Conklin was limited in practice on Wednesday before sitting out on Thursday, which is something to monitor as the weekend approaches. Amari Cooper and Donovan Peoples-Jones are the lone pass catchers to see near-every-down usage in this offense in the absence of David Njoku, who was becoming a near-every-down tight end prior to injuring his ankle. Njoku missed practice to start the week and should be considered doubtful as of this writing, placing increased emphasis on Amari Cooper's shoulders this week. Cooper has seen double-digit looks in four of eight games this season, scoring five total touchdowns. One thing that might go missed by the field is the increased ADOT and deeper routes that Cooper is running with the Browns after managing only 8.7 and 11.5 marks the past two seasons, 12.9 this year, which is 19th in the league. Peoples-Jones actually has a lower ADOT than Cooper after being treated as primarily a deep threat throughout his career prior to this season, 11.5. Either way, expect these two to be on the field almost every offensive snap, and expect an increased percentage of the aerial work to flow through them without Njoku in the lineup. There is upside here against a Miami secondary allowing 36.6 DK points per game to opposing wide receivers, good for ninth most in the league. How Miami will try to win. We know the drill with Mike McDaniel's Miami offense at this point. They want to put their best offensive options in the best positions to succeed on every play. To this point in the season, that has meant leveraging the accuracy and first-read decision-making ability of quarterback Tua Tagovailoa with primary reads to Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell. Duh. Suffice it to say, instead of working to get their outside zone run game going, they are working to maximize what is working, to get the ball to Tyreek and Waddle. That said, the brilliance of this offensive scheme is Mike McDaniel's ability and creativity in finding unique ways of making that happen. Godspeed, Mr. McDaniel. We tip our fantasy hats to you. Defensively, the focus began on locking up the back end through layered coverages, removing the run game from the equation, and blitzing like madmen to wreak havoc on opposing quarterbacks. The problem for this unit has been twofold. One, injuries have derailed that game plan on the back end, and two, the blitzes have been largely ineffective, creating pressure at a rate less than half that of their blitz rate. That's not going to cut it in today's NFL, where quarterbacks are increasingly capable of diagnosing the holes left behind the area of the blitz. That has led to one of the largest splits in offensive success rate and defensive success rate allowed across the league, with the Dolphins leaping to the third most yards per drive on offense, but allowing the fifth most yards per drive on defense, which is where we've gotten our Miami shootouts from this season. One more note here. McDaniel is one of the most dynamic and flexible coaches in the league, one that takes every play as an opportunity to improve. If you don't believe me, just go watch one of his many post-game pressers from earlier this year. Jeff Wilson was added at the trade deadline and immediately commanded half of the backfield usage and snaps, playing one more offensive snap than incumbent starter Raheem Mostert and equaling the latter's longest run of the season in one game. That said, I don't expect this backfield to suddenly experience a changing of the guard, instead likely remaining a tightly compacted timeshare between the two moving forward. 
Also, just because the Dolphins made a running back acquisition at the deadline does not mean this team will suddenly shift to a more run-focused offense, simply that the current load is likely to be shared more evenly than it previously was between Mostert and Chase Edmonds, who is now with the Broncos. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above average 4.51 net adjusted line yards metric against a Cleveland defense allowing a robust 4.95 yards per running back carry this season. But again, the matchup does not equate to the likeliest path of attack here. The breadwinner of this offense is without a doubt the flow of volume and schematic deployment of Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell. Tua Tagovailoa has taken massive strides in his game this season pretty much across the board. His deep passing accuracy is up, his overall accuracy is up, his efficiency is up, everything is up. Furthermore, the primary coverages employed by the Cleveland defense have been cover one man and cover three zone this season. Both Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell have performed at top 10 marks against those coverages this season. That's both a reflection of their individual skills as well as a reflection of the offensive design being employed by Mike McDaniel. Either way you slice it, this is a plus matchup for the two primary pass catchers of the Miami offense. The last thing to consider here is the presence of both secondary tight ends on the injury report, Hunter Long with a concussion and Durham Smythe with a hamstring injury. Smythe should be able to go this week, but in the off chance both miss, it could fundamentally change how the offense operates, with an increased emphasis on the blocking tight end's presence. Trent Sherfield has played ahead of $22 million offseason acquisition Cedric Wilson, typically at a 3-to-1 ratio. Expect that to continue moving forward, barring outside influence. Finally, although Mike Gusecki has seen his snap rate and targets per route run rate take massive hits this season, he still has been utilized frequently in the red zone, seeing eight total red zone targets through nine games played, meaning he carries an outside chance at viability at a highly variant position, even on low expected volume. Likeliest Game Flow This one carries an immensely wide range of potential outcomes as far as the likeliest game flow goes, with everything from a slow-paced slugfest to a take-the-lid-off shootout within the range of viable outcomes, largely dependent on Miami's ability, or inability, to put up points early. The biggest knock on Cleveland's defense is their below-average performance in the red zone, which is likely going to define the eventual environment here. Should Miami score on their early trips to the red zone, Cleveland is likely to be forced into increased pace and aerial aggression sooner than they would otherwise like, whereas if their underperforming defense holds up in the red zone, it should allow the Browns to approach the offensive game plan through their preferred means, slow pace of play and increased rush rates through Chubb and Hunt. No one scenario is exceedingly more likely than the other, making the overall game environment and flow fall into the wide range of outcomes bucket for us this weekend. As such, there are some very specific ways to build around the two viable scenarios, with everything from one-offs to full game stacks on the table. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Texans at Giants. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 41. Game Overview by Hilo. Two run-heavy offenses against two defenses that rank in the bottom three in yards allowed per running back carry. It doesn't take a lot of convincing to see the clear path for both offenses here. Kenny Galladay returned to a limited practice out of New York's bye, while Daniel Bellinger remained out on Wednesday. Brandon Cooks was listed as DNP Wednesday with his phantom wrist injury, 
while Nico Collins returned as a limited participant. We're likely to see a below-average total number of offensive plays run from scrimmage, with each team highly unlikely, and mostly unwilling, to open up their offense until late in games. How Houston will try to win The Texans currently sport the league's third-worst net points per drive, second-worst net drive success rate, and worst net yards per drive this season. When combined with a slow pace of play, they rank 24th in first-half pace of play, and 27th in pace of play with a score within 6 points, it has led to Houston running just 58.3 offensive plays per game, which is 30th in the league, ahead of only Tennessee and Carolina. While their overall 59.66% pass play rate appears non-terrible on the surface, we have to factor in the low volume on the offense and the 20th ranked pass rate over expectation, PROE, value for this team. It also can be said that Lovey Smith's approach to game management has largely worked as advertised this season, with the team allowing only 22.9 points per game, which primarily can be attributed to coaching scheme, game management, and an affinity for a more ball-control-based team. Overall, expect low volume through the pass game and heavy concentration in the backfield, primarily through rookie running back Damian Pierce. Also, consider this. The median plays per game value in the NFL this season is 63.3, a number that the Texans have surpassed only twice through eight games. They played 70 in Week 1 and 65 in Week 7. Again, volume is an issue here. The offensive game plan for the Texans isn't necessarily as bad as most seem to think it is this season. To me, last week's Thursday night football game against the Eagles highlights this assertion. In that game... The Texans absolutely fed rookie running back Damian Pierce, giving him a massive 27 carries against the top team in the league. Was this primarily due to the mostly neutral game script? Was it primarily due to the fact that Brandon Cooks and Nico Collins were out? Or was there a deeper meaning here? I would argue that Lovey Smith and offensive coordinator Pep Hamilton laid out a game plan that gave their team the best chance to knock off the undefeated Eagles. The Eagles have the largest gap in pass DVOA versus run DVOA in the league checking in at 2nd in pass DVOA and just 27th in run DVOA. Fletcher Cox and Javon Hargrave are a shell of their earlier selves against the run, primarily making their noise through their still-above-average pass rush. That led to 27 Damian Pierce carries to just 22 Davis Mills pass attempts, with an overall 59.3% rush rate. The Giants ranked 24th in rush DVOA and 23rd in pass DVOA indicating that we might see another run-heavy offensive game plan from the Texans here. Furthermore, since Damian Pierce took over as the unquestioned lead back in Houston, he has seen target counts of 6, 5, 4, 5, and 0, meaning he likely falls in the this player might have enough receiving usage to offset one of the required scores he needs to be GPP viable, considering our shift in the way we are viewing the position through the lens of how can running backs hit GPP viable scores in today's changing game? Most players in today's game fall into the category of needing 100 plus rush yards and multiple scores, whereas some provide enough receiving work to offset one required touchdown. The matchup on the ground yields a borderline elite 4.71 net adjusted line yards metric against the Giants team seeding a robust 5.40 yards per running back carry this season, which is third worst. To say the Houston passing attack is in a state of complete disarray would be an understatement. Lead wide receiver Brandon Cooks was vocal about his desire to get out of town leading up to the trade deadline, was vocal about his dissent about not being traded at the deadline, and then missed the Thursday night game against the top team in the league two days after the trade deadline for 
personal reasons. Their number two wide receiver, Nico Collins, has continued to underperform his hype and has not played since getting injured in week seven. Last week, that left their pass catching core in the hands of Chris Moore, practice squad turned signee Philip Dorsett, Tyron Johnson, Jalen Camp, and a tight end trio consisting of OJ Howard, Revan Jordan, and Jordan Aikens. The Texans have operated from 21 personnel around 20% of their offensive snaps this season, with those almost exclusively coming through the utilization of fullback Troy Hairston, as in Damian Pierce and Rex Burkhead don't play on the field together. They have also utilized 12 personnel about 30% of the time this season, making them one of the lowest 11 personnel rate offenses in the league. Look for that to continue against the Giants, regardless of the game day status of Brandon Cooks and Nico Collins. Now factor in the low expected pass volume and relative spread in snap rates amongst the skill position players, and there isn't a ton to like from this unit this week, or most weeks, for that matter. How New York will try to win. There's one stat that truly opened my eyes regarding how the Giants are trying to win games this season. Through eight games played, the Giants sit at a 6-2 record, while leading by seven points or more for only 18 minutes and 57 seconds. If that doesn't point to exactly how this team is trying to win games, I don't know what will. They've played at a below-average pace of play, 20th-ranked first-half pace of play, and 19th-ranked situation-neutral pace of play, with the 5th-lowest PROE and a 16th-ranked net drive success rate. Furthermore, their DVOA-adjusted estimated win value sits at 3.9 games, ranks 20th in the league. Basically, the Giants are doing everything they can to stay in games until the fourth quarter, where they are hoping to squeak out wins. And up to this point, they've found the variance to swing in their favor. Their offense has utilized elevated rates of 12 personnel, which persisted through Week 8, their first week without rookie and lead tight end Daniel Bellinger who did not practice Wednesday coming out of their bye after surgery was required to address a fractured orbital bone near his eye. To me, that has been a function of both lack of viable wide receivers and an offense that has attempted to grind out games through elevated rush rates and a slow pace of play. We talked about the complete state of disarray regarding the Houston wide receiver room. Things don't get any rosier for the Giants. More on this later. The heartbeat of this team, without a doubt, is running back Saquon Barkley. Barkley currently leads the league in snap share, 83.4%, and running back opportunity share, 85%, ranks fourth in expected fantasy points per game, 18.5, and has the third highest route participation rate amongst running backs, 60.1%, and has the second most breakaway runs, 12. That said, he has not been the most efficient back in the league behind an offensive line blocking to just 4.23 adjusted line yards ranking 23rd in the league in yards per touch at 5.1. Expect Matt Breida to see a handful of opportunities per game as the de facto change of pace back. The matchup yields a crisp 4.76 net adjusted line yards metric against a Houston defense ranked dead last in adjusted line yards allowed, 5.29, and yards allowed per running back carry, 5.69. Saquon's 35 total targets shake out to 4.37 per game played this season, which is low by his lofty standards. He has yet to post more than 45 receiving yards in a game this season, or score multiple touchdowns, or catch a receiving touchdown. There are a couple of different ways to view this. He either has some positive regression coming through the air, or his role on a team looking to grind out wins has fundamentally changed. At this point, I think the truth is more likely to align with the latter. 
making him closer to a yardage and touchdown back than the field is likely to realize at this point in the season. Does that matter in a game against a Houston defense that's the worst in the league against the run? Probably not, but worth mentioning regardless. This brings us to the Giants passing game, which is a veritable disaster. Thought to be starting wide receivers Kadarius Toney and Kenny Galladay played a combined 134 offensive snaps for the Giants through eight games, about two games worth combined. Tony was dealt away to Kansas City at the trade deadline, and Kenny Galladay hasn't played since week four, returned to a limited practice on Wednesday as the team comes out of their bye. Let's break down the state of this team's pass catchers even further. Rookies David Sills and Daniel Bellinger have played the most snaps amongst New York pass catchers. Darius Slayton, who started the season at fifth or sixth on the wide receiver depth chart, has played the third most snaps amongst pass catchers. Journeyman Richie James has played the fourth most snaps while combining for only 11 over the previous two games. Sterling Shepard was lost for the season in week three. Rookie Wandell Robinson has realistically played only two games, and recent practice squad signee Marcus Johnson has led the team in snaps over the previous four games. Yeah, it's bad. Looking forward to this week, I tentatively expect Kenny Galladay to return and mix in with Darius Slayton and Marcus Johnson on the perimeter while Wandell Robinson maintains a firm grasp on slot duties. Blocking tight ends Tanner Hudson and Chris Myarek should split time at the position, while Lawrence Cager should also find himself in for a handful of snaps. Robinson is clearly the most dynamic piece outside of Saquon Barkley, but his poor 59.6% route participation rate offsets his good, not great, 24.6% targets per route run rate. Good luck finding guaranteed points from this lot. Likeliest game flow. We are likely to see both teams turn their focus to the ground here, maybe more so than we've seen out of each squad to this point in the season, which is saying a lot. The Giants rank just above league average and plays run per game, while the Texans rank near the bottom of the league. When you add the low combined pace of play and conservative nature of these two teams, we're likely to see a game that ends well below league average in total offensive plays run from scrimmage. There's nothing about New York's defense that is overly prohibitive aside from a third-ranked red zone touchdown rate allowed, 42.86%, which ranks behind only the Broncos and the Rams this season. Basically, each team should find relative success via their preferred means of attack, which, as we established, should be on the ground. And since neither team has shown a propensity to open up their offense until extremely deep into games, the paths to this one opening up into a fantasy-friendly affair are slim. The Saints at the Steelers kick off Sunday, November 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40. Game Overview by Hilo Mark Ingram and Marshawn Lattimore remained out to start the practice week, while Jarvis Landry continued his trend from last week of limited showings. Offensive linemen Eric McCoy and Andres Pete also missed practice on Wednesday. The Pittsburgh injury report should look familiar, with multiple pieces of the secondary still listed as DNP and kicker Chris Boswell yet to return to practice with a groin injury. This game flow and environment should go as Alvin Kamara goes, with a relatively wide range of potential outcomes. The path to upside runs through Kamara, which would then open up the Steelers' offense into a range of increased pass attempts and potential fantasy goodness. T.J. Watt tore his pectoral in the first game of the season, but it is reportedly close to a return, as in he could make it back this week for a defense struggling to generate pressure in his absence. How New Orleans will try to win The Saints are likely to continue with Andy Dalton as their starting quarterback moving forward, at least for Week 10, 
which gives us a different look to the offense than what we saw to start the season with Jameis Winston starting. During the six-game stretch with Dalton at quarterback, the Saints have averaged 26.83 points per game, while Dalton has attempted just 31.67 passes per game. The Saints clearly want to run a moderately-paced, run-focused attack with an 18th-ranked first-half pace of play, 27th-ranked situation-neutral pace of play, and 27th-ranked pass rate over expectation. But a defense allowing the fifth-most points per game has forced them away from that game plan in most weeks. Recently, that has meant an increased focus on Alvin Kamara, both on the ground and through the air, increased utilization of everyone's favorite fantasy troll Taysom Hill, and a high concentration of targets for rookie wide receiver Chris Olave. But we must understand that this team still wants to be run-balanced first and foremost, with the tendency to not open things up unless pushed into dire straits. Alvin Kamara has played a total of seven fully healthy games for the Saints this season. In those games, he has seen no less than 62% snap rate with an average of 72.3% of the team's offensive snaps. His touch totals have wildly fluctuated based on varying game flows, but he has seen target counts of 6, 6, 7, 9, and 3 last week in the blowout loss in games he has played with Andy Dalton at quarterback. The touchdowns have overall been lacking, scoring all three of his yearly touchdowns in one game against the Raiders two weeks ago, but the usage is back to vintage Kamara levels, bringing along a solid floor and elite ceiling with it. Expect Kamara to soak up 70% plus of the offensive snaps here, with a likely 80% plus of the total available running back touches. The pure rushing matchup yields an above-average 4.62 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Steelers defense allowing 23.1 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Dwayne Washington should get another week as the de facto change of pace back, with Mark Ingram unlikely to return from injury. In what should seem like Groundhog Day, the Saints have had to fight through multiple injuries amongst their pass catchers this season. Michael Thomas is likely done for the season, Jarvis Landry hasn't played since week four, tight end Adam Troutman missed two games, and even Mark Ingram has missed two games. That has forced this team to turn to rookie wide receiver Chris Olave as their alpha, with a smattering of mediocrity consisting of Marquez Calloway, Traquan Smith, Keith Kirkwood, Kevin White, the electric rookie Rashid Shahid, and Deontay Harday all figuring into the wide receiver picture thus far. Jarvis maintained the same level of practice participation as he did all last week, with a limited showing on Wednesday, which doesn't mean much to us after he missed last week's game. The best-case scenario is the team gets Landry back this week, likely in a limited fashion, after missing five straight games. The pass offense under Dalton has been a conservative one, who holds a below-average 7.5 average intended air yards per pass attempt value this season. Expect Kamara and Olave to maintain their statuses as the focal point on the offense, with nothing in the matchup to deter either from finding some form of success here. How Pittsburgh will try to win Man, there are quite a bit of moving pieces and uncertainty with the Steelers this week. Chase Claypool was dealt away prior to the trade deadline, and the Steelers immediately went on by in Week 9. We have coach speak and national attention hinting at the degrading relationship between the team and Najee Harris, going as far as to say Jalen Warren might be the lead back against the Saints. Rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett continues his experimental tour as the starter, with pass attempts of 52, 44, and 38 in his three fully healthy starts. No less than four members of the Pittsburgh secondary remain on the injury report, with two listed as DNP to start the week. 
TJ Watt has been out since week two with a torn pectoral muscle, but could return this week. Finally, kicker Chris Boswell has yet to return from a groin injury and was listed as DNP Wednesday. That's a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty. That said, we know how the Steelers want to try and win games, and we know how they've been forced to try and win games this year. Pittsburgh starts games with a slow pace of play, 21st ranked first half pace of play, and elevated rush rates with an aim to mask the relative deficiencies of their offensive and defensive lines due to injury, but have been forced to turn to an up-tempo, aerial-based attack for most of the year, 7th ranked second half pace of play. That leaves this offense with a relatively wide range of potential outcomes directly influenced by what the Saints are able to accomplish on the offensive side of the ball. I honestly have no idea what to make of the run game for the Steelers this week. The talk of the town, so to speak, from everyone from head coach Mike Tomlin to local media to national media, has been the growing impatience for the inefficiencies of starting running back Najee Harris, who saw enough volume last season, on a low upside yet competent offense, to overcome the poor efficiency. This season, however, has not been the same story. Harris holds a meager 3.3 yards per carry value, 64th in the league, lol, and 56th ranked yards per touch value this season, and has scored just three total touchdowns, leaving him as one of the biggest busts of offseason drafts through the halfway point in the season. Tomlin hinted at a potential change in the plan this week, which could signal undrafted rookie Jalen Warren as the starter. I would caution against taking a stand on either side here, as it's much more likely that Jalen simply sees additional work this week as opposed to swapping roles with the incumbent starter. Realistically, that should just mean neither is fantasy worthy for us. The matchup on the ground yields an average 4.35 net adjusted line yards metric against a Saints defense no longer amongst the lead's leaders in rush defense, ceding 22.4 DK points per game to opposing backfields. We've seen a shift in emphasis in personnel alignments this season for the Steelers, who started the year with increased rates of 12 personnel and heavy sets, but have shifted to more 11 personnel usage as the season progressed. The problem is, we have yet another wrench thrown into things with the departure of Chase Claypool, who was their primary slot-wide receiver this year. The two most likely scenarios are we either see the offense move back to a heavier base sets through their tight ends and or fullback Derek Watt, or we see Gunnar Olszewski's role grow out of the slot. My initial hunch is to expect Pat Fryermuth's snap rate to increase back to early season rates. He started the year with games of 89 and 81% snap rates before seeing it dip to 49%, 59%, and 62% over his last three healthy games. I tentatively expect Fryermuth to jump up to the 85-90% to 90% range, with blocking tight end Zach Gentry moving to the 45-55% to 55% range. That should still provide 50-60% to 60% of the snaps left over for Gunnar Olszewski out of the slot. But yeah, a ton of conjecture and educated guesswork is involved here. Realistically, it's difficult to project much outside of lead wide receivers Deontay Johnson and George Pickens and tight end Pat Fryermuth. The Saints have schematically erased tight ends all season, ceding the lowest DK points per game to the position, with the most damage done via perimeter-wide receivers, particularly through the absence of Marshawn Lattimore, who missed practice again on Wednesday. Likeliest Game Flow We're likeliest to see the Saints return to form and find success against the Steelers here, due in part to an inefficient offense led by rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett on the other side, and in part to likely success through Alvin Kamara, both on the ground and through the air. 
That is likeliest to lead to increased aerial aggression from the Steelers, who have shown a propensity to throw caution to the wind and attack relentlessly should they be forced to do so, even with their rookie passer under center. Pass attempts of 52, 44, and 38 in his three fully healthy starts this season. More passes equal more clock stoppages, and chunk gains equal greater fantasy upside for all parties here. With that being the likeliest scenario, there are multiple things to like from this game, considering the concentrated offense from the Saints, Kamara and Olave, and a Steelers offense playing its first game without Chase Claypool in the mix, leaving Deontay Johnson, George Pickens, and Pat Fryermuth with the potential to see a slight uptick in usage. Side note, I'm most excited at the prospectus of Fryermuth's growing role, which is a valid potential outcome considering the undersized Gunnar Olszewski is the likeliest player to step into some of Claypool's snaps in the middle of the field. The Broncos at the Titans kick off Sunday, November 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 37.5. Game Overview by Hilo Ryan Tannehill got in a limited practice Wednesday after apparently being close to playing in Week 9 through his ankle injury. Five defensive starters missed practice for the Titans on Wednesday, including nose tackle Ter Tart, defensive tackle Jeffrey Simmons, inside linebacker Zach Cunningham, outside linebacker Bud Dupree, and strong safety Amani Hooker. Denver has the highest delta between defensive DVOA, second, and offensive DVOA. 27th in the league. The Derrick Henry show should be allowed to continue and thrive here against a clear run-funnel Broncos defense seeding 5.02 yards per carry to opposing backfields. How Denver will try to win. The Broncos have to be considered one of the greatest head-scratchers of the 2022 season, limping into the midpoint scoring the third fewest points per game, 15.1, ahead of only Pittsburgh and Indianapolis, with a roster that many attacked relentlessly in off-season best ball drafts. The offensive logjam shouldn't be viewed as resulting from one particular aspect, but rather a combination of multiple shortcomings. First, Russell Wilson has looked hashtag bad. His timing is off, his arm strength appears down, and he has yet to gel with his pass catchers. Second, Javante Williams was lost for the season early in the year, and he is inarguably their most dynamic offensive playmaker. Next, their pass catchers are having an immensely difficult time separating from defenders, with Cortland Sutton, 82nd, Jerry Judy, 90th, and KJ Hamler, unqualified, all struggling to separate from coverage. Their most often open player this season has been rookie tight end Greg Dulcich, whom we are starting to see become one of the most reliable weapons on this offense. Finally, head coach and offensive play caller Nathaniel Hackett has called one of the most vanilla and boring offenses in recent memory. Leveraging his defensive fortitude, second in defensive DVOA and second in points allowed per game, to run a moderately paced, 11th in the first half pace of play and 16th in situation neutral pace of play, balanced offense, neutral pass rate over expectation. The loss of Javante Williams for the season sparked a chain reaction for this run game. First off, their offensive line has not been atrocious by any means, blocking to the 13th best adjusted line yards metric in the league. Their running backs have underperformed that mark by a solid 0.73 yards per carry, ranking as the sixth worst yards per carry unit in the league, which also comes with the largest gap between line yards created and running back output. This prompted the acquisitions of veteran running backs Latravius Murray, lol, and Chase Edmonds at the trade deadline to pair with Melvin Gordon further convoluting the expected snap and opportunity share in the backfield. 
The pure rushing matchup yields a well below average 4.12 net adjusted line yards metric against a Tennessee team ranked atop the league in the metric. Just 3.99 running back yards allowed per carry. Your guess is as good as mine as to how the backfield usage will be allotted for the Broncos this week. Things don't get any better through the air, as newcomer quarterback Russell Wilson is the proud custodian of PFF's 29th overall rating at the quarterback position, amongst qualified passers. As touched on above, the primary pass-catching options have struggled immensely in generating separation this season, with the unit led by rookie tight end Greg Dulcich. To highlight the vanilla play calling and general dysfunction from the offense this season, Denver has called play action on just 57 Russell Wilson dropbacks this season, a number surrounded by Zach Wilson, Ryan Tannehill, and Baker Mayfield, who have all played two fewer games. Cortland Sutton has been in a rout on every single pass play this season for the Broncos, yet commands targets at a meager 22.1% target per route run rate. Jerry Judy's targets per route run rate still sits at a comparably poor 22.7 rate. Both rates are roughly equivalent to rookie tight end Greg Dulcich's 21.8% targets per route run rate, which honestly shouldn't be the case for a rookie tight end. Yards per route run? 2.33 for Dulcich, 1.89 for Judy, and 1.66 for Sutton. The one glaring positive here is a matchup with a Titans team allowing the third most fantasy points per game to opposing quarterbacks, third most fantasy points per game to opposing wide receivers, and seventh most fantasy points per game to opposing tight ends. How Tennessee will try to win. Tennessee's intent is very clear and it has even been muttered by head coach Mike Vrabel on the sidelines during the game over the previous two weeks. Get the ball to Derrick Henry and shut down the opposing run game. This team is built through everything from personnel to coaching staff to identity to win in the trenches, and that is exactly what they are attempting to do week in and week out. Their slow pace of play, like slow, 32nd in overall situation neutral pace of play and second half pace, and 30th in first half pace aids in their quest to grind out victories through a ball-control mentality. Basically, this team was able to rip off five consecutive wins and just missed knocking off the Chiefs at Arrowhead, failing on an overtime field goal, to be tied atop the AFC, all with no true pass-catching threat and two of the games of a rookie backup quarterback. The Titans currently hold the second-lowest PROE value and third-lowest overall pass rate, laughably low at 33.13% pass rate over the previous three games. It is clear the game plan starts and stops with the offensive and defensive lines, which is shown through the play and volume of Derrick Henry. Henry has the most carries through nine weeks of the season, the most rushing yards, the second most fantasy points per game at the position, and the fourth highest team backfield opportunity share. The dude just keeps on getting it done, and he's gotten it done with an average of seven defenders in the box and the third highest rate of stacked front carries. Lol. He has scored 19.8 fantasy points or more fantasy points in his last five games, including four of 26.5 fantasy points or more and two of 30.2 fantasy points or more. He is currently on pace for an astounding 366 carries in his age, 28 season. Expect Dontrell Hillard to serve as the pure change of pace and obvious passing down back at a 30% clip. He has been between 28% and 31% snap rate each of the previous five games, a tight range of expected outcomes barring injury. The matchup on the ground yields a borderline elite 4.79 net adjusted line yards metric against a clear run funnel Broncos defense allowing 5.02 running back yards per carry, fourth most in the league. 
The Titans have played the highest rate of snaps from 12 personnel since their Week 6 bye at an absurd 78.67% rate, which encompassed one Ryan Tannehill start and two Malik Willis starts. Those rates remained relatively flat through all three games, with opponents being the Colts, Texans, and Chiefs. All of that to say, it appears to be a concerted effort to play primarily from heavy personnel sets out of the bye as opposed to either an opponent-specific game plan or a shift in unison with a change at quarterback. As such, we can expect that trend to continue with the eventual return of Ryan Tannehill, which could happen as early as this week considering he was close to playing in Week 9 and got in a limited practice on Wednesday. The shift in personnel identity has left all of Robert Woods, Nick Westbrook-Ekine, Cody Hollister, Jeff Swaim, Austin Hooper, Chigozium Okonkwo, and Kevin Rader as rotational pieces with no clear volume biases. As in, not one of these pass catchers has seen over a modest 78% snap rate over the previous three games, nor has anyone seen more than four targets in a game over that same time frame. Furthermore, the Broncos are one of the most run-funnel defenses in the league, ranked first in pass DVOA and 25th in rush DVOA. Good luck picking a pass catcher from this lot. Likeliest Game Flow Considering the state of each of these two teams, it is likeliest we see the Titans control the tempo and environment through both their offensive and defensive lines, paired with Derrick Henry, which leaves the overall flow with a rather tight range of outcomes likeliest to mimic a slugfest. The eventual flow is likeliest to be left to the Broncos to decide, as there is a clear path for them to attack heavier through the air should they choose. The problem is their pass offense has been so disjointed that we can't say with a high degree of certainty that they will either choose to attack more heavily through the air or be successful should they try. Basically, expect the Titans to control the trenches with the ultimate flow decided by how the Broncos respond. Doesn't inspire much confidence here. That should provide a further path for Derrick Henry to continue his absurd workload against a defense very clearly a run-funnel unit. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Colts at the Raiders kick off Sunday, November 13th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Two franchises with big preseason aspirations are now spiraling into dysfunction and obscurity. The Colts' experiment with Sam Ellinger at quarterback has backfired miserably. They have arguably the worst offense in the NFL. Conservative approaches on both sides of the ball limit the ceiling of this game's expectations. Josh Jacobs and Devontae Adams account for a huge amount of the Raiders' offense, but this also makes them predictable for opponents. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win As I write this, Jim Irsay just announced that he will be hiring the winner of this week's Millie Maker as the general manager of the Colts' effective Monday. In all seriousness, what is going on in Indianapolis is nothing short of mesmerizing. During Frank Reich's tenure as their Colts' head coach, they had been consistently competitive and always in the mix, with three winning seasons in four years, and their only losing season being the 2019 season when Andrew Luck surprisingly retired a couple of weeks before the season started. Once again, the Colts were having a competitive season with a couple of big wins over the Chiefs and Broncos when owner Jim Irsay reportedly forced the team to move to former sixth-round pick Sam Ellinger at quarterback. 
despite the team having a 3-3-1 record. The last two weeks have been ugly for the Colts. Ursay fired Reich early this week for reasons unknown, but it is probably safe to assume that Reich was ready to be done with Erlinger experiment and Ursay's ego wasn't about to admit defeat. Now the Colts have former Pro Bowl center and high school football coach Jeff Saturday as their interim head coach. While Parks Frazier, a 30-year-old who was the assistant quarterback's coach until a few months ago, will now be calling the plays. Life comes at you fast, Colts fans. The Colts' offense, with Sam Ellinger under center, has averaged 9.5 points, 3.9 yards per play, and 223 total yards from scrimmage through two weeks. Those averages would all rank dead last in the NFL over a full season. Ellinger has taken 11 sacks and averaged only 5.8 yards per pass attempt, which ranks dead last in the NFL during that time. The good news for the Colts' offense is that the Raiders' defense generates significantly less pressure on the quarterback than either of the Colts' last two opponents, the Commanders and the Patriots. Hopefully, the Colts can translate that into better protection and some improved efficiency for their passing game. The other area of hope for the Colts lies in the health of Jonathan Taylor, the heart and soul of the Colts' offense. Taylor re-injured his ankle in the first half against the Commanders and missed last week's game against the Patriots. If he were able to return this week, he could provide a spark and some consistency for an offensive unit that desperately needs it. While we really can't know what kind of tendencies to expect from the Colts due to their new coach and play caller, we can make some educated guesses on what the approach will be. If Taylor is able to play, we should expect a very run-heavy game, as the Colts called run plays on the majority of their first downs over the last two weeks while the games were close, and would likely do so to an even greater extent if they can lean on their all-pro running back. Saturday's background as an offensive lineman would also lead us to believe that a run-oriented approach would be likely. The other caveat here is that a Raiders pass defense that ranks dead last in DVOA Maybe the Colts could try to make Ellinger more comfortable by going to more spread looks and letting him attack the short areas of the field with time to throw against a less imposing pass rush. We can't really know at this point, although the way things have gone down for the Colts over the past month, I would think the owner's desire to run the ball more will win out in the end. In any regard, the Colts will once again struggle to score 20 points and will play at a slow pace while relying on their defense to give them a chance to win. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders' offense flows primarily through two players, Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs. In last week's loss to the Jaguars, the Raiders sent the ball in the direction of those two for 37 of their 57 offensive plays, a staggering 65% mark. This week, against a Colts team that is unlikely to be able to move the ball or score efficiently, We should expect a somewhat similar and predictable approach from the Raiders, as their offense likely only has to score close to 20 points to have a very good chance of winning. The Raiders throw the ball at a slightly below average rate and also play with a below average situation neutral pace. The Colts' defense is legit, ranking top 5 against the run and playing solid pass defense as well. The Raiders are unlikely to really open things up in a game where the Colts' offense poses very little threat of running away with the game. The Raiders' biggest threat of losing is self-imposed mistakes. This may seem like a very simplistic take on this side of the game, but there really isn't much else to see here. 
Jacobs and Adams have been 60% plus of the offense for most of the season, and the Raiders have shown a great willingness to go into a shell when playing from ahead or not being pushed. A conservative approach is almost certainly in the cards, and we know where they are going to go with the ball whenever they can. Likeliest Game Flow The lack of explosiveness or consistent scoring ability for the Colts significantly hinders the outlook of this game. This is a matchup of easily stoppable force versus very movable object between the Colts' offense and the Raiders' defense. The Raiders' defense has allowed every team this season to score 20-plus points against them, while the Colts' offense has scored more than 20 points only once. On the other side of the ball, the Colts' defense has also held five of nine opponents to 20 points or less, and the Raiders' offense has shown the tendency to be wildly conservative when playing from a position of strength. Last week was the second time this year where they scored 20 first-half points and then scored three or less points in the second half. The Raiders' likely conservative approach and the strength of the Colts' defense make it unlikely the Raiders pop off for a big scoring day as well. From a how-this-game-plays-out scenario, last week's Colts-Patriots game seems like a pretty good barometer of what to expect. The Raiders have some more firepower on offense than the Patriots had, but their predictability and unwillingness to unleash explosive plays have to be a concern. The Colts' run defense is very good, which should slow Jacobs down, and Stephon Gilmore has been excellent in coverage this season, which makes it unlikely that Adams sparks the Raiders' offense consistently. Until the Colts' offense shows us some signs of life, games like this are likely to become the norm, especially against non-elite offenses. The Cowboys at the Packers kick off Sunday, November 13th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Cowboys are a very strong team coming off their bye and are facing a Packers team that is struggling with injuries and inefficiencies as they watch their season's hopes fade away. The Cowboys' offensive strength is in their running game, which has a terrific matchup this week. The Packers are on a five-game losing streak and have not scored over 20 offensive points during that stretch, averaging just 14 points per game on offense. Both teams have a negative pass rate over expectation, while the players pay at a very slow pace and the Cowboys tend to push their tempo. How Dallas will try to win The Cowboys come out of their bye week with a 6-2 record, the top-ranked defense in the league, and their offense as close to fully healthy as they've been at any point this season. While the Eagles have looked dominant this season, there is a long way to go, and things can change quickly in the NFL. See the Bills' loss to the Jets and Josh Allen injury. The way things are shaking out in the NFC, if the Cowboys can ride some momentum into their second half of the year, they could end up as the cream of the crop in their division and conference. The last time we saw the Dallas offense was in Week 8, when they went nuts against an overmatched Bears defense, and Tony Pollard showed a glimpse of what life could be like with an explosive runner as the featured back. Ezekiel Elliott should be back this week for the Cowboys, which will allow them to impose their will with their running game against the league's 31st ranked run defense. The Packers' defense is in an even worse spot as well, thanks to several injuries that have them scrambling for bodies as they attempt to put the brakes on a five-game losing streak. The Cowboys this season have thrown the ball well under expectation for the game script, and this matchup should do nothing to dissuade them from continuing down that path. 
The passing game should have the opportunity to be highly efficient as well, as the Packers will have to give a lot of respect and attention to the running game. Dak Prescott is fully recovered from his early season hand injury, and Michael Gallup and Dalton Schultz should be close to full strength after each battled back from some knee issues at different points this season. The Cowboys play with the fifth fastest situation neutral pace in the league and should not be shy early in this game about imposing their will with a confident game plan that uses their running game to move the chains and set up their passing game to attack all areas of the field. We should expect the Cowboys to move the ball well and simply need to continue strong scoring efficiency as they showed in their last two outings before the bye to take an early lead. They can let their league-best defense handle things from there against a Packers offense that has shown very little signs of life recently. How Green Bay Will Try to Win The Packers have lost five straight games, and everyone keeps waiting for them to bounce back like the Packers we've grown accustomed to, but with each passing week, that seems less likely. There will be no R-E-L-A-X speeches from Rodgers in the near future unless something changes drastically, and a matchup against a ferocious and rested defense doesn't seem likely to be the spot for that to happen. The Packers' offense appears to be on the brink of a full-scale implosion and mutiny with every passing Aaron Rodgers press conference and podcast. Rarely will you see someone who has been in the league as long as Rodgers, who has had such a high standard throughout their career and is playing at such a low level now, who is then openly and publicly throwing blame everywhere except in the mirror. There is certainly a reason for frustration, as the receiving core and offensive line hasn't been great by any means, but it sure doesn't seem like the current rhetoric is doing any good. As for the Packers' approach to this specific game, the Packers throw the ball at a league average rate and play at the same slow tempo they've played at for quite a time with Rodgers, with the fifth slowest situation neutral pace of play in the league. The Packers will certainly not be speeding things up for this game against one of the best defenses in the league, which has personnel advantages at virtually every spot. The Packers struggled at times with the Detroit defensive line and now face a ferocious Cowboys defense that has PFF's top-graded pass rush. The Cowboys' secondary ranks third in PFF grade and second in yards per pass attempt allowed, while the Packers' receiving core is in pieces and they rank 26th in yards per pass attempt this season. The Packers' running game has been a lone bright spot at times this season, but Aaron Jones has an ankle injury, and the Cowboys have elite athletes all over the field who should be able to contain the Packers' rushing attack. It should be noted that the two games where the Cowboys' defense struggled in run defense were against the Eagles and Bears, two teams who have dynamic running quarterbacks that present unique challenges schematically for a defense. Aaron Rodgers is far from the athlete that Jalen Hurts and Justin Fields are, so the Cowboys' defense should really be able to hone in here. The Packers' offensive approach will be to hang on for dear life and hope they can get a couple of big runs and broken plays to get a lead, and hope their defense can keep it together. Likeliest Game Flow There seems to be a high likelihood of the Cowboys taking an early lead in this game. The strength of their running game and the ineptitude of the Packers' defense in that area just make it too likely that Dallas is able to move the ball and get some points early. The only way the Packers will be able to slow down that Dallas running game is by dedicating a lot of resources in that direction, which will leave them vulnerable to big plays in the passing game against a somewhat forgotten passing offense that still has explosive potential if when needed. Adding that to the likelihood of an early Dallas lead is the strong chance of three-and-out possessions for the Packers in such a tough matchup.
The Packers will slow the game down as much as they possibly can early on, and the Cowboys' run-first attack will also keep the game clock moving. This will likely set the game up for a relatively low-scoring first half, but if when the Packers fall behind by two-plus scores and are forced to be more aggressive, it will be interesting to see what happens from there if Rodgers is forced to press a little bit against an opportunistic pass rush and secondary. If Dallas struggles to finish off drives with touchdowns, that will let Green Bay hang around and work to significantly slow down the pace in scoring this game. However, if Dallas comes out hot and makes the Packers turn things up, that could result in a lot of Packers' mistakes that lead to short fields for the Cowboys and this game getting out of hand. The Cardinals at the Rams. Kickoff Sunday, November 13th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is a rematch of a Week 3 game that the Rams won 20-12. The Cardinals' offense averaged 18 points per game in six games without DeAndre Hopkins, and has scored 25 points per game since his return. The Rams have scored over 14 points only once in their last five games, which was in a 24-10 Week 6 home win over the lowly Panthers. Neither team has been able to establish much of a running game this season, and both teams have a strong run defense, which will make both offenses relatively predictable. How Arizona Will Try to Win Arizona's offense has been rejuvenated since the return of DeAndre Hopkins, scoring a touchdown more per game since his return. However, the Cardinals disappointingly returned to a very conservative, horizontal raid approach in their Week 9 loss to the Seahawks. This may be the last chance for the Cardinals to stay in the hunt and avoid a lost season and desperation, as they have already lost once to the Rams and would be 0-4 in the division and completely lost in head-to-head tiebreaker against two of the other three teams in their own division. In the first matchup of these two teams, the Cardinals were unable to score a touchdown despite running 81 offensive plays. Kyler Murray threw the ball for a whopping 58 times, but was only able to muster 5.4 yards per pass attempt. For comparison's sake, the lowest YPA for any NFL team this season is 6.0. The Cardinals welcomed James Conner back to their backfield last week, and Conner played on 74% of the snaps in his return. The problem for Conner and the Cardinals' running game is he isn't a guy who creates yards on his own and the Cardinals' offensive line has been battling injuries and inconsistency all season. They now face a Rams defense that ranks top five by pretty much any run defense metric you can find. The Rams continue to play zone coverage at the highest rate in the NFL, which should encourage the Cardinals to continue their short area emphasis in the passing game. The Rams' defense also ranks 31st in the NFL in pressure rate, which is something that Kyler Murray will likely look to take advantage of with his legs if nothing opens up through the air. The only issue with that is the zone schemes the Rams run will likely keep those Murray runs from turning into anything long as they are an athletic unit that will not be turning their back on him. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The Rams have one of the worst rushing offenses in the league. While their passing game hasn't been great this year, they still have Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup, which has led to them having the sixth highest pass rate over expectation in the NFL through nine weeks. However, now Matthew Stafford is in the concussion protocol as he reportedly began experiencing symptoms after Sunday's game in Tampa Bay. It is unclear exactly when symptoms started, 
But given all that has gone on in the NFL this season in regard to concussions, it seems like a bit of a long shot that Stafford would be cleared to play this week. Ouch. For an inefficient passing team that has often thrown primarily out of necessity due to a failing running game, losing your Pro Bowl quarterback is not an ideal scenario. John Wolford will start for the Rams if Stafford is unable to play. Many may forget that Wolford was called into duty as the Rams' starter in Week 17 of the 2020 season with a playoff berth on the line against these same Arizona Cardinals. Wolford won that game, and McVay then started him in a playoff game against the Seahawks over a healthy Jared Goff. During those stints, Wolford completed 57% of his passes for roughly 6 yards per pass attempt. He handled himself reasonably well, but he was also playing with better weapons, a better running game, and behind a much better offensive line. This week will present a significant challenge as the Cardinals' run defense has been solid, and their pass defense has done a very good job of limiting opposing wide receivers this season, specifically wide receiver ones, and one would think that the short area passes to Cooper Cup would be the de facto approach for moving the ball this week. The Rams have the third slowest tempo in the league and will almost certainly keep up that plotting pace in this game. Their defense has held the Cardinals in check over the years and has only given up over 20 offensive points to opponents in two of eight games this season, which should give them the confidence to play with a very conservative approach and try to win a close, low-scoring game in the fourth quarter. Likeliest Game Flow Expectations for this game should be held significantly in check. The Rams' offense has shown a very low floor and ceiling in recent weeks, and if they are forced to play without Matthew Stafford this week, then we could see them struggle to reach double-digit points. Meanwhile, the Rams' defense has had the Cardinals' number for some time now, and even if the Cardinals are able to move the ball, it seems unlikely that they will be able to easily convert drives to touchdowns. The Rams have an elite run defense, and the Cardinals run the ball at the fifth-highest rate relative to expectation in the league. This means that the Cardinals' play-calling tendencies in scoring areas will be to run right into the teeth of the Rams' defense. Not great for scoring. The likeliest outcome for this game is another field goal contest. Their first matchup featured six field goals and only two touchdowns, and a lot of offensive frustration. The Cardinals seem highly likely to control the game in terms of time of possession and total plays run, but whether they can actually be efficient enough to turn those things into points and build a lead remains to be seen. These teams also rank 20th and 30th, respectively, in situation-neutral pace of play, which further leads to the likelihood of a grinded-out game that features a lot more star power in names than it does in production. 